0: John chapter two. John chapter two. Go there with me, would you please? I hope you have, hope you have your copy of God's Word, and and you brought your Bible with you today. And and we're going to look at uh, the first eleven verses of John chapter two this morning as we continue in our study through the Gospel of John, uh, the Gospel according to John. John chapter two, and I would like for you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read from mine. John chapter two, verses one through eleven. And verse 6 says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, as we began our study in the Gospel of John, and as we've studied throughout John chapter 1, I have been reminding you of this one thing, and I've been taking you back to this one thing repeatedly, and I have a feeling that we're going to be doing this throughout the Gospel of John, because John says, here's why I've written what I've written in, in this Gospel. John chapter 20, and verse 31, that you may believe, Right? that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have faith in his name. As we continue our study, we're going to keep that thought in mind. We're going to keep reminding ourselves of this because it helps us understand the Scriptures, understand John's Gospel better to know why he wrote these things that he wrote. So we arrive at chapter 2, and we find here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and actually... This account is only a semi-public uh, appearance of Jesus, a semi-public appearance of his beginning ministry. And when we look at this first miracle of Jesus that John has included, let's ask this question with John twenty thirty one in mind. What about this points to the fact that Jesus is the Christ for the purpose of helping us believe in him, the Son of God, giver of eternal life? What is it about this account of this first miracle, of this first public, semi-public ministry of Jesus Christ that helps us see Jesus for who he is and put our trust in him. Now, the key to understanding the importance of this passage is in verse 11. And I want you to go to verse 11 with me. We're going to go to the end so that we understand the beginning. Okay, I want to start at the end of the story here because the end is actually... The whole point. The whole point is summed up in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now it says that Jesus manifested his glory. And we understand why Jesus manifested his glory when we When we see the response of Jesus' disciples, what does it say about how his disciples responded when they witnessed the manifestation of Jesus' glory? It says they believed in him, right? They believed in him. And that points us to the Apostle John's purpose in writing this gospel, right? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus' disciples... Certainly saw something that made them believe in him, right? What was it? Well, verse 11 says it was a manifestation of his glory. God, Jesus manifested his glory, right? Remember back in chapter 1, verse 14, if you've been with us for these studies, you might remember, or if you've read John chapter 1 recently, verse 14 in John chapter 1, where John says of Jesus, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth we have seen we have seen his glory here's an illustration of it in, in verse 11 of chapter 2 we have seen his glory now what does that mean what does it mean that they saw his glory what does it mean that jesus manifested his glory Well, when those who followed Christ saw his glory, they were seeing clearly who Jesus is. What it was, was he was making very clear to them who he is. And when they saw a manifestation of his glory, it was very clear to them that he was obviously God in human flesh. A manifestation of of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ was making clear to those who were observing who he is. And obviously, when you see the glory of Christ, your faith, something happens to your faith. Think about it. When you recognize the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, when his followers looked on him, it says, and they they saw the manifestation of his glory, what does it say? They believed. We would say their faith in Jesus was strengthened. They believed, and their faith was strengthened, right? When you see a manifestation of God's glory in Jesus Christ, and we have, we have it again and again in God's word. When you read God's word and you believe, your faith is strengthened as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who God's word makes very clear who he is as God in human flesh. Now, this is how we can best understand why John shows us this first miracle of Christ. Why does John go and show us this miracle, this, this miracle of water to wine? I'll give you a hint. It's not about the wine. You so want it to be about the wine, probably, right? I'm sorry. It's not about the wine. It's about, it's about Jesus manifesting his glory and his disciples believing in him. I'll give you a hint. You want to know about the wine? Come back tonight. <clears throat> That's only one of the things I'm going to talk about, and it's only going to take a few minutes. It's not going to be a real long part of our part time tonight. But it's not about the wine. It's about... The glory that Jesus manifested and his disciples saw and what it did for them was bolster their faith and grow them in their faith. Now, verse 11 says that Jesus manifested his glory. Now, I think the first way that Jesus reveals his glory is seen in his interaction with his mother. You may never thought about this before. You might have thought about it a little bit because it seems out of ordinary. It seems strange, his interaction with his mother. Doesn't it seem a little strange here? To you, when you read this, you say, this is not how I would talk to my mother, not and keep my head on my shoulders. I, I'm not saying it's that bad. It's really not. It's not like that. OK. And And we kind of when we see this passage, we bring in our Americanized culture into the Bible and we can't do that. We got to take that out and wait, wait, wait. This is not what was happening there. This woman, you know, you don't ever say that to your mother, do you? Husbands, you don't ever say woman to your wife, do you? You're in trouble if you do, right? You're going to be in trouble. You just, you know, well, anyway, well, I'll let the Lord deal with you about that. All right. This is not, don't, don't get that wrong here. Don't don't see that and say this is male chauvinism. You know, Jesus is just, you know, no, no, no. The, you got to understand where Jesus is coming from, where he is in the culture, right? In In that time, in that Jewish culture, all right? Now, you see something here in verses 1 through 4 that seems unusual. It is usually this thing where he says woman, right? And he addresses his mother as a woman. Now, when Mary comes to Jesus and tells him there's a shortage of wine, his response is not It's not mother. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan and Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, right? So he knows his mother. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So when Mary comes to Jesus and tells him there's this shortage and, and people are going to be embarrassed if we don't do something about this. And by the way, I know you have the ability to do something about this, Jesus, right? Mary comes and knows that Jesus has some power. And so there's a suggestion here that she knows that he's capable and suggesting that he should use his power to do something about the shortage of wine because they're going to be embarrassed. It's possible, too, that that Mary was, I don't know, maybe she was the wedding planner. I don't know. Um, or something like that. She was, she was a part of this process of helping this wedding. You know, maybe it was a family member. We're not told in this text. I'm just making this up. Um, But we're not told it's possible that she was, uh, they were members of a family or close friends of the family. It's possible she had something to do with with the arrangements, right? And so she notices we're in trouble, the wine is gone, and Jesus, you can do something. Now, his response is not mother, right? Mother, why are you asking me to do this? It's woman. And that seems unusual to us, doesn't it? Wouldn't we expect him to address his his mother as mother and not woman? But when you see Jesus' response there, I think our tendency is to think that this is just a, even just a little bit rude. Now, granted, we say, but this is Jesus. Okay, so let's not call him rude. But we go, eh, it just doesn't seem right. Something's out of place here. And part of that thinking, I think, comes with how we would view a, a person saying that in our, our culture. And we kind of need to remove our culture from this picture. Okay, Jesus calling Mary, woman, is is not what we would make of it in our culture, is actually actually more like him saying, ma'am. It's actually like saying ma'am to a woman. Now, for years, I've been trying to teach our kids to say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. And and our kids say to their mother, ma'am, a lot. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Right? And if you don't, you'll hear from me. Right? We've been trying to teach them that because it's basic. We just think it's kind of a, a polite thing to do, Right? Now, in our culture, people say, ma'am, at least they used to. We don't very much anymore, but people do still say, yes, ma'am and ma'am. And that's more what Jesus is doing here when he says woman. It's more like saying ma'am. But even that seems a little strange, doesn't it? To, to, say, to start at the beginning of, the, of that phrase and say, ma'am, what are you, what are you asking me to do? Why are, why are you asking me to do this? But Jesus wasn't being rude, okay? So let's just remove the rudeness from the picture here. Don't misunderstand this. Jesus is not being rude to his mother, but it is a little bit unusual. So what's the point? You're sitting there going, come on. What's the point? He's making a point about where his allegiance is. And you're saying, how's he doing that? Think about this with me. He's manifesting his glory. He's making it clear whose servant he is. He is not Mary's servant, is he? And, and if I might put it this way, he doesn't take orders from Mary. Jesus doesn't take orders from Mary. Who does Jesus take orders from? God the Father, right? And so he's making it clear whose who's mission he's on. And Jesus is helping his disciples to see clearly who he is. And it is, it is much clearer who Jesus is when we understand that his allegiance is to his heavenly father and not his earthly mother, right? So when Jesus says, woman, it's like, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's, he, he manifests his glory in his glorification of the Father's will over him. He glorifies the Father by, by kind of making the point, by saying, I'm not here to do what you ask of me, I'm here to do what the Father has asked of me. And my time isn't quite here yet. And you're kind of asking me to reveal something about myself that, that I'm It's not in the timeline yet. I'm not ready for that yet. This isn't when it's going to happen. And his response was not rude, but it was it was kind of an unusual thing. But it was for the sake of making it clear to whom he was to be obedient. All right. Now, he also makes clear to whom he must be obedient when he says, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? In effect, he says, why are you asking this of me when it's not really your place to ask me to use my power? Again, he's not being rude. He's just making a point. And there, there might be a little bit of correction for Mary here because she's going, you know, you could do something about this. I'm going to ask you. And he's saying, look, this is not yours to ask. and This is about his allegiance to God the Father. You need to see it that way. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ submitting to God the Father. I think we also see in Jesus' response to his mother that there's no special privilege in being part of Jesus' earthly family. Have you ever thought about that? There is no special privilege in being part of Jesus' earthly family, not even for his mother, not for his brothers, not for his sisters, right? There's no special privilege for them in being part of Jesus' family. Jesus is bound only to the Father, and he's bound only to the Father's will. And likewise, salvation is only for those who believe in Jesus, even for his mother, even for his brothers and sisters, only if they would believe in him, salvation would be theirs. And Jesus even makes this clear in Luke chapter 11 and verses 27 and 28. Just listen as I read where we find this. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd, this is Jesus being spoken to, raised her voice and said to him, Jesus Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. You know his response, right? It was not about his mother, but he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, blessed are those who hear the word of God and believe and obey. Far better than being the mother of me, he says, is are those for whom they listen to the word, they believe, and they obey. Mary is not favored because she's his mother. She must believe like others. He makes that clear. There's no special privilege in being part of Jesus' family. That is his earthly family, right? There is special privilege for those who become part of his adopted family. And I trust that's you. You need to believe in Jesus. You can't earn salvation. You can't become a part of Christ's family. You can't make yourself a member of His family apart from this. Belief in Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished for you with with His shed blood on Calvary. That makes you His adopted brother. His adopted sister, right? Jesus' earthly family, His brothers, his sisters, not even his mother, they have no special privilege over the rest of mankind. Only belief, and get this, only belief, I'll say it again, in Jesus Christ gains acceptance for you into God's family. And for that, really think about this, for that we ought to rejoice. That there's no special privilege for Jesus' earthly family. The, the ground, you know, I've said it before and you've heard it before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, Right? And I think we see an illustration of that here. Jesus is making it very clear right at the outset of his public ministry that he is not going to be bound. He is not bound by any human demands. And that's made even clearer when he says, my hour has not yet come. You know what that points to? Every time you see that, and we're going to see Jesus saying this several times in John's gospel, it points to his death. Listen to what he says in John 10, verses 17 and 18. But he is making a point. Look, my hour is not yet come. I'm not yours to tell what to do. I'm I'm here to do the Father's will. John 10, 17 and 18 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. You hear that? But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, but wait a minute. I know you said it wasn't about the wine, but Jesus did do a miracle here, right? And he did do what his mother asked him to do. So how come you're saying that he's not taking orders from anybody but the Father, right? Now, why did he say what he did if he was just going to go ahead and make the wine anyway? Yes, he did, didn't he? <laughs> but listen, it was for the purpose of revealing his glory it was for the purpose of making clear very clear who he is essentially it's you know no my time has not yet come and i'm not here to reveal exactly what you're thinking i'm here to reveal but but i will give you a sign of what's ahead i will give you a pointer to what's to what's to come how's that well, it's seen in what he's pointing to when he says, my hour has not yet come, right? We know that if you know the Bible, you know when he says, my hour, my hour, my hour, we're talking about his death. And He says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus' hour always points to the time of his death. It's the purpose for his coming to earth the first time, right? His hour would be the time of his death when he, he would bear the sin of the world, and that being people of all nations who believe in his name. His hour would be the The time that he suffered and bled and died for your sins and mine. It's only for those who believe in him. It's not for those who think they're privileged. It's not even for his family. There is no privilege. It's only for those who believe. Now, even though Mary and the others present would not have grasped the full meaning of Jesus' hour, they would in time, right? And John the Apostle includes this even at this early stage. Even the readers, the first readers of John's Gospel would not understand what Jesus' hour was until they read elsewhere and, and read further in John's Gospel. It's one of those literary things, right? You kind of tell them early on a little bit of the story and then they go, what's that? What's Jesus' hour? And it keeps you paying attention. But for us we have the bible right we understand when talking about his hour we know what it's pointing to and even even that makes the story more rich for us doesn't it in helping us understand why jesus said what he did john's readers were going to fully understand that more fully as they read the gospel just as we more fully understand because we're we're already familiar with the whole story of jesus sacrifice for sin but we ought not take it for granted it ought to enhance the story and help us help us understand it more fully because of this they couldn't yet fully understand what Jesus meant when he said his hour had not yet come. But he was about to give them some pointers. And he does so by doing what was asked of him. He doesn't deny Mary's request, does he? We don't see a denial of the request. He's just saying, why are you asking me to do this? My hour not yet come. And she says, well, he didn't say no. So, OK, you do what he says. <laughs> right. He didn't say no. Do whatever he tells you, says verse 5. Now look at verses 6 through 8. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the mass of the feast. So they took it. John tells us that there are these six stone water jars here, right? And they're here for the sake of this... His he, uh, this right the Jewish rites of purification and John the apostle writes about this so his Gentile readers will understand because they don't know anything about these his Gentile readers will not understand this the Jewish rites of purification because the Jewish people they they have these ceremonial washings and that was a very important thing and a very important part of the Jewish religious practices and so they use these big Stone pots even calls them stone water jars because they're not made of clay because they thought the stone water jars would resist being tainted and and it would stay pure as where uh, as uh, as clay pots would be would become unclean. And so they have these big stone pots and there were several of them and they were very large and they held large amounts of water and they needed that much water for the, the rites of purification and for the washing of the the cookware and the washing of utensils for this gathering and such. Now, note that Jesus had the servants fill these large pots and they understood him to mean right to the top, because it says, John says, they filled it right to the brim. What does that tell you about the miracle? It wasn't some sleight of hand because there was no room for anything else, right? Some would come along and say, well, there was just there was a little bit of wine. He added water to it. They kind of. And the and the host said, "Oh, thanks for trying your best, and we'll do with this." You know, no, that's not what happened. There was a miracle that took place here. There was, and Jesus has them fill the pots to the brim. Jesus was going to miraculously change the water to wine, and that was no sleight of hand. Nothing could be added, right? Because there was no room for anything to be added. Now, note too that that, that with with such a large supply of wine, there's this kind of a, a pointer here to something that I think is precious. Uh, there's, they, they've gotten to the point in wedding feasts where they ran out of wine, but Jesus takes these large pots. Think about this: twenty to thirty gallons each, six of them, and he has them filled, and then he changes the water to wine. You think they're going to have enough? I think so. I think they're going to have some left over. May even be a nice wedding gift to take, you know, for the bride and groom to take with them if they could carry the leftovers off. Right? There's plenty. You ever thought about that? When you read that passage, Jesus made plenty. He didn't make just enough. We see that in other places, too. Think about it. What happened when he fed the 5,000? Was there just enough? No. There was plenty. They ate their fill, and they carried off leftovers. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. You ever think about that? God's grace is so bountiful, so amazing. What a blessing that God's grace through Jesus Christ is for us. And what a... What a beautiful picture that is, that there's this abundance. I'm not just going to make a little. You said you're running low. You're not going to run low during this party again. I'm making more. Now look at verses 9 and 10. Look at them again. He says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, and you might insert here with great surprise, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, the, the, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. He's surprised because he's tasted the wine and he's like, wow, this is way better than the stuff that we had earlier. That was, that's cool. I mean, nobody does that. The master of the feast, we might call him the head waiter, he tastes this wine, and though he didn't know where it came from, and though he didn't know it was a miracle, right? It doesn't say he knew it was a miracle. But he's amazed at how good this wine was. Now, I think as followers of Christ who have God's word and read the scriptures and know about the miracles of Christ, we ought not be surprised that the creator of all life could make wine that was like none other. Right. It was the best stuff that there was. No surprise to us. And it's instructive to his disciples as Jesus manifests his glory. Makes very clear who he is. He shows himself to be the creator that he is. Didn't we see that in the, the first chapter of John in verse 3? All things were made through him and without him not, not one thing was made that was made. Right? He's the creator of life. So no surprise for us, but it was a revelation of his glory to them. And it ought to be a revelation of his glory to us that he's able to turn the water to wine. No surprise, though, for us when we think of Jesus making wine that needed no grapes, didn't need a growing season, didn't need vines, didn't need dirt, didn't need fresh air, didn't need sunlight, didn't need fermentation. It's perfect because Jesus made it, right? And this is made very clear when in verse 11 it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I'll say it again. The point is not the wine. Okay? It's not the wine. And and, and again, if if you want to know the rest of the story, as they say, you can come back tonight. And we'll talk about the wine a little bit, and we'll talk about some other things that we can observe here in the passage that help us learn how to live for Christ in a sin-sick world, right? So we are going to talk about the wine a little bit, but it, this story is not about the wine, and I'm not making it about the wine tonight, just to, just so you know. But please do come, and, and I'll I'll tell you some things about what what's going on here. I think, but this whole story is not about the wine. I want to make it I want to make it very clear that the that the evidence for this is in verse 11. That the whole point of John's relating this to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not so that we can get hung up as to whether uh, God God or Jesus Christ made wine or grape juice. Okay. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ manifest his glory to his disciples and they believed in him. Please do not hear in anything that I've said my a lighthearted attitude about strong drink. OK, I will say this. The Bible does not condone getting plastered, right? The, the Bible does not condone. Being drunk. The Bible does not condone the kinds of things we call social drinking in our society. The the Bible does not put its stamp of approval on that. But what this is about, is about Jesus Christ through the miracle of making water wine. Making very clear who he is to his disciples and to his followers. Jesus manifests his glory. He put who he is on display as God in human flesh, he put himself on display so that those who believe would see clearly and be strengthened in their faith. And so his followers were witnesses to the manifestation of this glory, this sign, this miracle. And he wants them to see that he is fully God. And, and he wants us to see, as we read the text, that he is fully God. And John tells us that Jesus' disciples believed in him. In other words, his disciples saw his glory and were strengthened in their faith in him. And, and this is just what Jesus intended to accomplish, not this miraculous creation of, uh, from water to wine, this miracle from water to wine. It is the point, the point that he's making. Is, Look, I'm, I'm giving you a sign about my day, the day that's not yet come. You need to believe in me. You need to trust in me. You need to believe that I'm God in human flesh and I've come to, to be sacrificed for your sins. But you don't know that yet. <laughs> He's starting to make it clear. He's starting to reveal himself to them. John tells us Jesus' disciples believed in him. They were strengthened in their faith because they saw this sign and believed They saw his glory and their faith was strengthened. And that's what Jesus intended to accomplish. But I want you to note something else. Note that not everyone at the wedding who witnessed his glory or witnessed this, this miracle actually witnessed his glory. Not everyone who saw the miracle witnessed his glory. His disciples did. But not even those servants who knew that a miracle had taken place witnessed his glory. You need to note that. John does not tell us. The reason I say that is because John doesn't tell us that the servants who clearly witnessed this miracle believed. Right? He said, fill the pots. They did. To the brim. He said, take some out and take it to the master of the feast. They did. They saw the master of the feast go, wow, this is good stuff. And they had to go, whew, what just happened? Right? But they didn't see his glory. Because they didn't believe. We we see no evidence here that they believed. There's no evidence that any of these servants followed Christ as a result of witnessing this miracle. How can that be? I know that you're frustrated at times, as I am, that people don't believe. Right? Because we live in a place where I don't see how you can't believe. I've been enjoying the weather like you have, and I've been enjoying Higgins Lake like you have the last couple of days, I trust. And, and I look outside and I go, I see miracles everywhere. I see the hand of God everywhere. And it strengthens my faith. It gives me strength, and it gives me hope, and it encourages me. And I think, how can you not believe? Right? You just look at your own hand. And get a magnifying glass and look really close. And that's just the just surface, right? How can you not believe? And, and we can be frustrated, can't we, at times with people who we, we desperately want them to trust Christ. We want them to obey God's word and believe in him. But John makes clear by the absence of belief from those who witnessed this miracle. How can that be? How can you witness a miracle of Christ and not believe? The Bible tells us how that's possible. And and the Bible tells us so that we don't get discouraged and quit. The Bible says this. It is an obvious result of the truth that we see in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where it says, in their case, that is for those who don't believe when they see. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of Listen, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is that? In their case, the God of this world, who is that? Satan, right? The prince of the power of the air. He is powerful. He's not as powerful as God. Don't ever think that he is. He isn't as powerful as God. He's only, he's only doing what God allows him to do. And God, for a reason I can't explain, and neither can you, allows him to darken the hearts of unbelievers. And Satan is devious, isn't he? He is a, a dark demon of destruction, if you want to use a triple D, right? He is, he is a tempter. He is a liar. And what happens when people's hearts are darkened? And God has not opened their minds yet and opened their eyes to see the truth yet. Satan's pouring it on, making it hard for them to see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can see a miracle and not believe. And that's what happens. And we see it again and again in God's word, and you see it again and again in this world, right? People can be told the truth, and yet they don't believe. It doesn't mean stop. It means keep On, plugging away, keep telling people about Jesus, keep explaining the truth to them, keep taking them to Jesus in his word, and pray that their eyes will be opened and that God will draw them to himself and soften their heart of stone. It still happens today, doesn't it? Even when a follower of Christ has been faithful and shared the truth of the gospel and has lived a powerful witness of the love of Christ, there are very often still people who remain in disbelief. And it breaks our hearts, doesn't it? But we ought not stop because we know that there is a reason for their disbelief. And we're going to pray that God opens their eyes so that they see and believe and they're strengthened in their faith. Because what happens when you believe in Jesus and you see the signs of his deity and you see them and you believe? You're strengthened. You're encouraged. You're built up. You're disciplined in your walk with Christ. You are you are energized to be faithful to Him. You're encouraged to to just being continually faithful and obedient. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that when you're when you're sinful, you confess that sin, and you say, God, I sinned against you again. I know I have your forgiveness. Now give me the strength to get, to be done with that sin. And that is why we have this account of Jesus' first miracle. It's so that we will see Jesus for who he is and believe and be strengthened in our faith. And isn't that why God has given us his word, the Bible? Isn't it? He has been so gracious to give us his word. We dare not neglect it. We dare not neglect the signs and the evidence of his grace and his mercy and his power. God is so good to us to show us himself in Jesus Christ. It is ours to believe. It is his to strengthen us. And he does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your word. What powerful truths, what powerful encouragement, what wonderful strength we find when we yield ourselves and humble ourselves before your word. And your Holy Spirit is unleashed in our hearts and minds to to show us your truth and encourage us and strengthen us. God, I pray that you would help us to be numbered among those disciples who see the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, this manifestation of Jesus' glory in the word that you've given us, in the example of those who have gone before us, in in the things that we know that God is doing in our lives, accomplishing his purposes for his glory and our good and that you would use those to strengthen us in our faith and our walk with you today. God, I pray for the souls here who who may be here who have not trusted in you, that they would see Jesus clearly today and humble themselves before you in prayer, asking for the forgiveness of sins, believing in Jesus Christ, that they might be saved and have eternal life and, and live a new life in Christ. How wonderful that is that we can do that God, I pray that you would enlighten darkened hearts, roll away the stone of of hardened hearts, and help unbelievers see the manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ and believe. God, I pray strengthen your people. Help us to believe continually that we might be strengthened in our faith and our obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.